This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well... We haven't run out of history quite yet. Well, welcome to this uh, special mini Primitive Culture. We are live at the Albert Hall in London. I'm here with Clara Cook. I'm here with Amy Nelson. I'm here with Lee Hutchison. Uh, I'm here with Tony Black. I'm here with Tony Robinson. And we've got a few other guests lurking around who may or may not be making their contributions known. Um, And we've been enjoying a very special screening of Star Trek Beyond with live orchestra, what did you all make of it? Yeah, it was wonderful. I always love the music that they play when they go into Yorktown. So to hear that live was, was quite special. I'm hoping the BC Boys will be out on the second half. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're looking forward to. We've already had Simon Pegg on stage so far uh, during the performance. Um, we're here at the interval in the bar, just sort of soaking up the atmosphere and chilling out before the second half. Um, and then we're going to go in and, and see the rest of the film. I mean... I don't know about you guys. For me, this is up until yesterday when we saw, because some of us were here yesterday and we saw Star Trek 09. Beyond is the only one of these films that actually worked for me the first time I saw it in the cinema. I really love this film. It's the one that kind of really gels for me. And I think even seeing it again, it's the one that kind of works the best. I did enjoy 09 yesterday. Uh, I was saying some of these guys, I enjoyed it more than I ever have before. But definitely for me, this is the one that seems to kind of really work as a film. What do you guys think? What are your sort of feelings on the, the Kelvin timeline? Well, I love both of them. I think they're so good. And I was telling you, Duncan, I'm like, Beyond wouldn't be as good if we didn't have 09. I just loved 09. And it was interesting to see one right after the other. So, like, the music, it just sort of seems is the same. But watching it this time, I really noticed, like, the beginning of Beyond, I'm like, this music is different. And I'd never picked that up before because the same theme, you know, is played in both of them. But that that beginning, I was like, oh, yeah, this is the one with Crawl. And it just all came back. And just the difference, the smallest differences of the music really set up the two different the movies so differently i really really loved the music and how much different it is it live yeah you've got such a great podcast voice amy it's only in person right i really you have anyway but just like yeah it's just a good podcast voice um we're all gonna sound rubbish now compared to yeah it's it's great film it's still continually a great film i think the the orchestra really does add something to it i think it just yeah, I, I go back and forth as to whether or not I like this or this score better than Star Trek 09, which obviously we saw yesterday. But I don't, I don't know. I think there's just something about this this film as well. I love that. I realise watching these two films, how thematically the whole thing really is about Kirk's Kirk's journey from being a you know a boy who doesn't really who's lost to a man who's lost and happens to be you know going through this 
journey of becoming a captain and becoming you know his father essentially or what his father would have been and it really really comes alive when you watch them back to back essentially with what you're doing I know Into Darkness is also involved but it kind of this these two Star Trek and this one Beyond really match up in that way and it's really coming out to me as we watch it about just how much it's, it's all Kirk it's all Kirk's story more than the old films in a way maybe, maybe, that, maybe that's wrong I don't know what you guys think but it feels more acute in in the re the reboots than it does in the old ones. Well, I wonder whether that's partly because Kirk is so different in these films, and I think that's one of the things that, that I always had a real problem with about 09, Is I was just like, this is not Captain Kirk as I understand him because he's a different person. And I get that that was the idea was to give him a different backstory that kind of turns him into this. Weirdly, what I felt they were trying to do is there was almost they were trying to turn him into this kind of you know the womanizing troubled character that people sort of want to imagine that Captain Kirk was somehow you, you know someone with no respect for the rules, someone who was totally reckless and so on, and so they kind of had to put this sort of twist into the timeline in order to get that character out there, and that was what I always sort of struggled with a bit with that film. Yesterday, seeing it for whatever it is like the fourth or fifth or sixth time, it, it sort of gelled for me a bit more. But I think maybe. You know, Amy, you were saying to me yesterday, you couldn't get Beyond if you hadn't had 09. I think for me, somehow, Beyond makes me like 09 more because I sort of see, I see where it's going. And I can kind of, you know, by this point, I'm much more on board with these characters. I'm kind of willing to accept that they are who they say they are. I think that was a big part of it. I mean, I was wondering for you, Tony, you know, working on all this stuff to do with the fan films and so on. Pardon me, the first time I saw 2009 at the cinema, because I was like, well... Is this really any different for a fan film where other people are, you know, uh, imposters are pretending to be Captain Kirk or whoever, and it's not William Shatner, it's not Leonard Nimoy, but it's just we've got this massive budget and, you know, better actors and so on. I mean, is that a part of it, just that kind of recasting and the kind of challenge once you, when you're very familiar with a certain person in a role of really accepting someone else playing that role? Well, I think the difference between this movie and what a fan movie is is that for those who want to act in fan movies they really want to live out their lives vicariously through the lives of their characters and (laughs) I'm about to spill the beans on the greatest secret in Starfleet and this woman keeps interrupting what what does she I think she's a Klingon insurgent Okay, so what I was really going to say was that from the fan movie point of view, people who want to live out their lives vicariously through their characters, and they desire to do that, and they do it for the love of being part of the world of Star Trek, being part of that environment. Actors are actors paid uh, for their jobs, and they take them on according to you know, their contracts and their scripts. And in the case of Star Trek 2009, Into Darkness and Beyond, uh, these guys are doing a phenomenal job. They've got huge boots to fill, and they do it superbly. They absolutely do it. Coming back to the fandom side of things, Beyond is written by a fan. Simon Pegg is clearly the ultimate fan, and if it wasn't for him, perhaps this film never would have been made. It had so much troubles in its beginning. Simon picked up the ropes and, and went with it. Welcome back to Primitive Culture. We are now in a pub in Knightsbridge after leaving the concert, which ended on a very dramatic, explosive note, didn't it, with the with the soundtrack? The name of this pub is The Bunch of Grapes, which is not the most original name for a pub. <laughs> it's traditional. And <laughs> it is a pub. Yeah, it is a part of our culture. It's a primitive culture. It's a primitive culture. <laughs> And um, so I wanted 
to ask all of you here a little bit about the music of today's film. How do you think it compared to the music of some of the older films, some of the more original films? I have to say, I, I feel like seeing these films live and seeing the music performed live. Sorry, that was an interruption for uh, some of Amy's very fancy snacks uh, coming in British. during our conversation. A very British, well, allegedly a very British snack that she's well, ordered. I don't know what it is. So it <laughs> We're not quite British. sure. We're not quite sure how to identify it, but uh, you know, maybe. Uh, someone can scan it at a later date. But my feeling about the music of these films was always that it was so kind of bombastic. And Amy, you were saying you felt like seeing the two films back to back, initially you thought the music was all the same, but then you started to notice the differences between them. I felt like I really appreciated it more seeing it performed live. And, you know, it, it is very bombastic. It's quite loud. It's quite kind of intense. But at the same time, there are quieter moments. There are more reflective moments. And maybe those moments you don't necessarily notice the music unless you're unless it's you know obviously you'll be listening to the soundtrack but when you're watching the film you're kind of wrapped up in the story and so on and maybe you're not really thinking about the music but actually i was interested to see there was more kind of variety there than maybe i've been expecting oh yeah absolutely agree like the times i mean when you say bombastic loud and annoying right we know the bc boys and and that from uh, beyond but those quieter moments, they were the juxtaposition between that obviously just makes the film that much more powerful and that much more like I was getting teary eyed in so many more spots. And I can't even tell you how many times I've seen Beyond, but like I was getting teary eyed just because the emotion of it all. And of course, watching it with a bunch of fans is always 10 times better because people are laughing at the right spot and they understand the nuances of the dialogue so much better. And then to have the orchestra performing live just makes it that much more enjoyable. Definitely, you recognize those spots. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it was quite an emotional experience. Lots of people were quite moved by it. Tony, I know you, you were telling us, uh, you know, you had a tear in your eye more than one occasion, I think, during that show. Okay, so, yeah, some things send me easily, but, I mean, after that show today, there's a full orchestra playing the end theme, and we all know the notes, and the voice comes on and says space, the final frontier. In fact, if I, think the, I think that phrase was spoken by the main actors. Each spoke a sentence, space, the final but anyway, the, um, the music soared into action and the main Star Trek theme came on. And for some reason, I just teared up. And it's just simply because of the pressure of the music and the atmosphere in the auditorium and everybody is tuning in. And it's amazing how euphoric music can make you do that. You know, I've noticed music on other movies that have that effect whether it's minor keys or major keys or or whatever it is but these composers really know how to uh, evoke emotion in you and i guess that's a good thing and the star trek theme we've heard for years i mean you know it's a, a very familiar theme but there's something about a live setting and there's something about a huge orchestra blaring that out you just sit there pinned to your seat and you can't help but be moved by it and I certainly was moved by it. I sound a bit wimpish you know, Tony teared up at the Star Trek theme but <laughs> hey, I don't know if if there wasn't a lot of other people in the room that it wasn't affected the other way as well so there you go, that's my uh, tuppence worth as they say
No, I think you definitely weren't the only one. And I think it's partly what um, Amy was talking about, about being in a fan audience, you know, being in an event like that, you know that everyone is very much on the same page. And I think maybe with Beyond, it particularly resonates because, you know, as we were talking about earlier, this is a film very much made by a fan. And we had Simon Pegg on stage talking about how much it meant to him, uh, you know, in his career to have written this film. And that's one of the things, that's one of the things that appealed to me when I first saw this film at the cinema was I felt like it felt like it was written by someone who really cared about Star Trek. And yes, there were kind of the in-jokes and the references and so on, but they didn't feel like cheap jokes. They felt like it was someone who was really kind of trying to tie it into the kind of broader Star Trek story. And I suppose I found it quite emotional, that bit at the end where they each speak uh, a section of that, whatever you call it, that, that kind of mission statement or whatever, because... Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the word is for it. Because, you know, we've, we've heard Kirk saying it, we've heard Picard, we've heard Spock, we've heard, you know, uh, in Enterprise they did that, they had the, the various captains saying it. But I suppose it also ties in very much with Beyond to the kind of theme of the film of this, you know, you can't break a stick in a bundle, this kind of teamwork and coming together. And the fact that they have everyone coming together and saying that at the end, you know, is a kind of a poignant moment. And particularly seeing it in a kind of fan environment in a sense where everyone's there for the same reason everyone's there to enjoy it it really kind of packs more of a punch somehow um so one of the things i noticed was that the music to beyond and actually any of the new reboot movies is it sounds more threatening to me like it sounds more dramatic like you said the sort of bombastic the beats and the shouting (laughs) um unlike a lot of the other star trek movie soundtracks which are more sort of aspirational slightly more romantic you can sort of see that they're sort of they go along with the stories of ships sailing and, you know, adventures. But the Beyond, but also all the, the other reboots, they're very, very aggressive and very dramatic. And I think that's because our nature of Star Trek and, and our idea of Star Trek has changed. If you think about Discovery, think about we have a more of a cynical and sort of perhaps darker look of the world now. You know, the, the television is, is, is much more cynical, there's more cynical stories. And there's this kind of aspirational message in Star Trek more recent Star Trek has had a darker theme. And so the music has to kind of fit that. The bit in Star Trek Beyond that actually affects me the most is the destruction of the Enterprise. So the, the sort of hive-like, bee-like ships coming back and cutting the neck of the Enterprise off. And because the Enterprise itself is very much a symbol of a home in space and they're out in the deepest, darkest reaches of space and they have no starbase nearby and no planet. The thing that's the, that grounds them and keeps them together is the actual ship itself. So the destruction of the ship, every time I see this movie, always affects me. And what I've noticed is that the music gets very soft at that point, almost as if you're sort of witnessing, like, the death of a great animal. You're witnessing real tragedy happen. And the real sort of loud, bombastic music, it kind of comes before that. That's the real threat, you know, the real banging, um, a lot of drums, a lot of horns, a lot of violent, aggressive violins. And then it gets very quiet as the Enterprise sort of floats apart. And especially also as Kirk is taking off in the rescue pod and he's watching the Enterprise crash, well, the disc of the Enterprise crash into the planet. And that look on his face, and as a captain, that would have a real psychological impact. It's an echo, I think, as well of the first film. I mean, it's interesting seeing them day by day, back to back. You get the same thing with the destruction of the Kelvin. And I suppose this film is very much, again, sort of, I mean, it's interesting skipping out the middle part of that trilogy, in a sense, because you do see much more the connections between these two films that maybe have more in common. And you see that that kind of style again, I think, with the destruction of the Kelvin in that film. You've had all this drama. It's been very loud. It's been very kind of energetic. And then there's a point where it's it's almost like kind of washed out because the emotion is kind of overwhelming and the music does become quieter and the kind of the, the audio is muted, effectively, as a way for you to kind of 
I don't know, sort of take in the the emotional drama in a way and kind of absorb that. And I think that's a trick that definitely gets repeated again in this film as well. And and maybe that's quite nice for a kind of respite for a film that you know because these films are very action packed. They are very kind of frenetic. I mean. It, even this one is very much a kind of action romp. You know, the pace is is pretty relentless. It kind of hits the ground running and it keeps going bang, 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 bang. The reason I feel that it works better for me is that it sort of feels to me like it's all going in the same direction. They're not. It's not just unconnected. You know, disconnected set pieces, which sometimes I feel with these films, they're a bit. The emphasis is too much on the set piece. So, like the the monsters in on the ice planet and beyond when i first saw that at the cinema that really bothered me and even yesterday i kind of cringe at that scene because i just feel like that's not it's not recognizably star trek to me that's very generic that could be star wars it could be any kind of sci-fi action series and it's just there to get a monster in and to have a bit of excitement for five minutes and then move on to the next thing and it, you know but what i felt with this film is it it does feel very much like everything is kind of moving the plot forward in some way and there's a real kind of forward momentum and I guess you know the music plays a big part of that as well so one of the things I noticed that when you see an orchestra playing a soundtrack live to the film you can really see how an orchestra actually makes the film basically I mean the film would be very different without the soundtrack and years ago when I was watching quite a frightening film in the cinema I put my fingers on my ears so I didn't have to hear the music because I was scared uh, it was a zombie film uh, <laughs> And I don't watch zombie films often, but I was forced to go to it. And I realised that actually what was on screen was a lot less threatening without the music. And so every time I felt frightened during the film, I put my fingers in my ears. Sometimes I closed my eyes and put my fingers in my ears. And then my companion jabbed me in the side and said, are you asleep? One of the things also about seeing an orchestra live is that you get to see how the different instruments are used in composing a score to a film. So what I wondered was... When you were watching this, were you paying more attention to the film itself or were you paying more attention to the actual orchestra playing? And at what points did you start paying attention to the orchestra? Well, we were quite fortunate because when we bought our tickets, they were up at the very, very top. And when we went to go to our seats, they're like, hey, we have tickets lower down. So we're like, score. So for 09, we were down a little bit lower, but still, was that the... the, Yeah, the stalls, but... So we were up a little bit, and so I could see the orchestra and the chorus that was there, and I noticed I was watching them much more and seeing, you know, how they would sway the violinists and, you know, and to see the drumming and the horns and the trombones, and and I was watching them, you know, and their emotion, what they were putting into the music, I could feel it, and then it was like, oh, I need to watch the film, and then I would be like, I'd be watching the film. Oh, I need to see what they're doing, you know? So I was going back and forth. Uh, But for Beyond, we got tickets down at the very lowest level. So I really couldn't see as much as the orchestra. I saw the first row, you know, and that was it. And the chorus, you know. And I noticed I was watching the movie more. And I sort of felt like, oh, I'm missing out. And I almost had wished that we didn't get such good tickets right down on the floor because I just, I couldn't see it. But I was very grateful to have that upgrade. It's interesting. It's true. I think the seats we had today, we could see more of the kind of strings because they were, you know, right at the front. Um, but you couldn't see the kind of brass instruments. And that was that was a shame, I think. That's true. I mean, I, I sort of felt like it's very hard not to get sucked into the film. Though. That's why I still felt like you sort of feel you're at the Royal Albert Hall, you're kind of attending a concert, you should be focusing on the music. But more and more, I felt my eyes would be sort of being dragged upwards because I wanted to see what was going on on the screen and kind of get sucked into the film. And then, and then every so often you think, oh, hang on, I'm meant to be, 
you know, appreciating the music, I better, you know, check out what they're doing. But I think definitely it does add something just to see, you know, the number of people for a start that are involved in an orchestra that size all work, you know, again, this kind of theme of working together. You know, you do get that sense of these kind of people all, you know, putting everything into it and really, as Clara said, really adding something that, you know, obviously is there in the film, but at the same time, it does take that music to kind of complete the puzzle somehow and if it wasn't there you know it wouldn't be the same film and it did start me sort of thinking you know because these films compared to a lot of earlier Star Trek they are very fast paced they do have a lot of energy they have a lot of kind of forward momentum actually that music is probably providing an awful lot of that and yes they might be edited quite fast and they might be you know directed in a certain way and they're quite kind of flashy and showy and you know we all know about the lens flare and so on but the music itself is providing a lot of that kind of propulsion that is really you know driving the movie forward and I didn't feel I was as aware of that before as I was, you know, literally seeing the musicians doing that job on stage live. Well, when you talk about the size of it, like, I didn't know how much was involved. Like, at the very end, we have the conductor come out and he points to the certain people. And, and then you're like, oh, my gosh, yeah, the horns, the French horns, the trombones, you know, and then we've got the pianist and the drummers. And he's pointing out all these people and you're like, every part played an important and integral role into building this entire orchestra. And when he's singling out each part, it's like, wow. And just sort of adds to the theme of, you know, you cannot break a stick in a bundle. He's the captain. Yes. Well, standing in the central position with his kind of thing around him and, you know, directing everyone to do what they know how to do. It's it's weirdly appropriate somehow. Very much so. I just want to add something about the music of the last three Star Trek movies and that is the consistency uh, from the composer Michael Giacchino and unlike other Star Trek movies which have gone before, they've all had a different, with the exception of James Horner, each and every yeah, he did uh, Wrath of Khan and The Search for Spock but I guess Jerry Goldsmith did First Contact, Insurrection and Nemesis Yes he did, but but each theme was different was, and... Yeah. But oh. still closely related. No, but I get your point. I, I, yeah. I totally see what you're saying, that like the, these three, they, the music is, it's not exactly the same, but it, like the theme is the same. There, there is now a, yeah. Ma- a reboot Star Trek. Michael has definitely uh, woven his own sound and his own theme uh, into these movies. Uh, totally identifiable. Um, don't ask me to hum it. No, seriously, don't ask me to hum it. Um, I might just start humming it now. For me, the piece of music that was the most emotional today, apart from the end theme, which I spoke about, is the entry into the Yorktown. The track is actually called Night on the Yorktown. And it's a completely different set piece. Uh, Incredibly romantic. Uh, incredibly versatile in, in its in its melody and it just sends you and it, it, it sets off the beauty of the Yorktown uh, uh, space station the magnificence of the architecture and how the Enterprise just comes to space dock inside the planet it's a, not a planet, it's a planetoid it's a thing starbase, star base, that's it but instead of having these uh, star bases where the ship docks outside externally, now it's an integral part, almost like a, a giant train coming back into the station. Incredibly moving. 
But that piece of music sends me over the edge every time. I felt, I mean, another moment that kind of struck me that, again, was on a, you know, maybe slightly quieter, you know, you talked about a romantic uh, moment. But actually, one of the things that really made this film work to me right from the get-go is that scene, there's the kind of montage of everyone going about their jobs on the ship. And I think that's one of the things that maybe has been missing from the Kelvin films up to that point. And again, you know, maybe partly from having Simon Pegg involved and having that kind of slightly different attitude is... You know, one of the things that is very charming about Star Trek and, you know, Amy, for example, you know, you're very into the next generation. I'd say this is the, you know, something that particularly came in from the next generation onwards is the kind of sense of everyone just going about their lives. You know, this is their home. This is where they're kind of, they're doing day-to-day stuff. It's not all about the action and adventure. And obviously this is an action-adventure film and it gets into the action pretty quickly. But at the same time, for that short kind of montage, you do get a sense of, you know, time has passed, you know, the days have been ticking by, you know, people have been getting on with their lives. Well, exactly. You know, um, you know, there's been romances. There's been, it's kind of in a very short, you know, probably like two minute sequence. And it is basically a montage with just music over the top, which is something that, again, you notice because, you know, you're watching these musicians playing and that's where the sound is coming from. It kind of conveys quite a lot in a short period of time. And again, you know, the music has to be sort of instrumental in doing that. Interesting you talk about that point, because when I went to the Beyond... Uh, like early release in LA and they gave us this sneak preview and it was that clip at the beginning that they showed all of his fans before the movie was ever to come out and it was that clip that solidified in my mind this is going to be a Star Trek movie like we're getting back to what it is the day in day out we're out in space we're traveling so I still remember that clip viewing it on Paramount Studios in LA with a bunch of fans and saying, oh my gosh, this is exactly what Star Trek needs to come back to. But again, I don't think that that clip would be as powerful if we didn't have that origin story in 09. You know, that we've seen them in 09 into darkness, go through these trials, and them coming together is because we have the history and the context of 09 and Into Darkness. Coming with us to the Star Trek concert today, we brought along a number of people who aren't traditional, I call traditional Trekkies, perhaps maybe people who come to it slightly later than the rest of us Trek FM podcasters, or people who are not podcasters themselves. Um, So we managed to bring along a bunch of relatives and friends, and one of those people is my husband, Mr. Ben Cook. And he felt like he had a few words to share about Star Trek Beyond and about the experience of the Royal Albert Hall. Thank you. Yeah, so I'd say, one thing I'd say is probably echoing Tony's words was the, uh, the fact that the, the music really touches your emotions, the human connection, and that, that really struck with me a chord right at the very end of the film where you had that traditional, um, I'm not sure of the tune, but the very sort of iconic sort of traditional music that you hear at the end of the film and it was when the choir got up and started to to, to really you know link in with the orchestra and for me that was quite a poignant moment in in the film i think the only other part which i'd probably factor in was really linking again to, to what was just discussed about the the sort of the daily mundanity of life and i really like that kind of contrast to then suddenly you know, leaping into a real burst of action. So it was just, yeah, it was quite interesting to see how they did that. And yeah, I hadn't really thought, as, as Duncan was saying, around the, the fact that the music is really enhanced in that point. Um, and you're, you're sort of drawn to the orchestra again. So yeah, just some, I, 
picking up on points really that from the discussion that were really interesting. So you have actually worked at a major concert hall in the past. So you actually have seen audiences enjoy live orchestras with other films, such as what, like the Jungle Book and Disney movies, and including there was a big Star Trek concert at the Royal, at the sorry, South Bank, the Royal Festival Hall, uh, like a year ago, two years ago, which was like the Star Trek: The Ultimate Voyage. So is this a trend? Do you think that's going to go forward, where we're going to actually see big science fiction films? or indeed actual other Star Trek films released again in concert halls with live orchestras? Is this the way forward Because to get more people to go to the cinema and watch these films? I think there's definitely an audience for it. It's one of those things where I think you really have to have the buy-in of the orchestra, and it sounds like, from what Simon Pegg was saying, there's, there's a lot of work pre-production and a lot of effort that needs to go in. So I think, yeah, a, a, a real fundamental aspects of any of the success of this type of music and, and audience interaction I think will be the orchestras really supporting it and you know embracing this new type of format because I think it I'm not sure it's debatable but I think it's quite a new format and maybe it's only been around for maybe five six years so yeah so I'd say it, de- it very much depends on the uh, the orchestra the conductor and how much energy and effort they want to put into into this as opposed to more com- other artistic programming and, and things like, um, you know, the classics that, that will always be a dominant part of any classical programming, you know, year to year. Yeah, so you very much have to have the buy-in of the conductor and the orchestra, don't you, really? Because without them being enthusiastic and playing to the, you know, like, basically with passion, it doesn't... Then you're just watching a, a film in a different context than a cinema. So I think particularly with the conductor. So I've, I went to see Harry Potter live... Harry Potter the Chamber of Secrets live at the Royal Albert Hall uh, last month and the conductor came out and spoke to the audience and got the audience to react to the film and react to them during the performance. So without the conductor, without the orchestra really being passionate about playing to the film and being passionate about the actual subject, whether it's Star Trek, Harry Potter or another one that's going to be at the Royal Albert Hall is Jurassic Park, that kind of thing, then I think you would literally just be watching a film in maybe a slightly less traditional context than a cinema. I would also like to introduce you to Susan Eldon, who is a dear friend of mine who I've known since I was a child. And Susan and I are big Star Trek fans together. She came along today to the concert. And Susan, what did you think of it? Uh, Thanks, Clara. I've never tried to string a sentence together before with a microphone, so I'm not sure how this will go. One of the things or characters I was really struck by was Jayla. Because I found by the end, I was as, maybe not as, but I was really invested in her and as interested in her outcome as everyone else is. I mean, we know everyone else is. They're all going to survive and grow old together. And that's lovely. But yeah, I thought she was great. And really relieved that she didn't turn into a love interest, even if it was maybe hinted at and it will come, probably, maybe. But it didn't happen. She was obviously really strong, very funny. Her tech was brilliant. Yeah, I was really glad at the end to see that she looks like she's going to be an ongoing character, is the glimpse that I gathered with the Starfleet entry. And what an exciting way to move forward with, you know, we've got this set of obviously really established characters and we've got someone new in there. And I was also thinking about that actress, what it must have been like for her joining 
that cast and crew three movies in, you know, joining a well-established group and then how that was echoed in her role as well. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing how she'll develop. Well, funny that you bring her up because I was one of those, maybe the only one it feels like, I didn't like Jayla. But it wasn't until this viewing that I felt like, wow, she is an integral part of the crew. I felt like it was for the first time I'm seeing this and I'm like looking at how much Scotty is depending on her. And it just, it really struck me. And I don't, I'm telling you, I don't, I saw the movie at at least eight times in the theaters. I saw it live at the world premiere. Like I've seen this movie so many times, but it wasn't until this viewing where it really felt like Jayla was a part of the crew. And I'm not quite sure why that is. um, But I really saw that and like her interactions with Scotty and, and, and how much that we, the, the crew needed her and that she needed them, obviously. So, it, interesting you bring that up. So, yeah, now I'm not opposed to her coming back. I Yeah, she's in Starfleet, so let's see her again. Yeah, she does continue to help the, the Enterprise crew once they hit Yorktown. So, I was quite, I actually noticed that this time, that she was continuing to help them and support them. And to try, she was trying to save Yorktown. She has no real buy-in there I mean she doesn't come from Yorktown she doesn't know anyone in Yorktown she could escape she could escape yeah Yeah. she she reached her goal yeah but yet still continued to help yeah and one of the moments I think is most touching in the entire film is that look of relief on her face when the Franklin actually leaves the planet and she's finally off the planet her single goal that entire time and she's probably been there for years is to try to get off that planet where her whole family died the so scene where she sees, you know, through the the little window or whatever, you know, and it's and yeah, the orchestra is a little bit quieter and you can see that and you feel, wow, she's reached her goal of leaving this planet. It's amazing. So one of the reasons why I think they might have put her in the movie is because there is this trend in science fiction now going forward of having more female characters, especially more female characters who have more agency in action and aren't just romantic romantic characters. So they're not just um like a foil for the for the main hero they're not just a love interest so they put they put her in star trek and i think a similar way that they put like ray in um, star wars but i think sometimes it can appear quite obvious that that's why filmmakers are doing it you know they're, they're trying to hit a certain audience they're trying to appeal to young women they're trying to maybe be quite politically correct but with jayla it felt very different it felt like she really was part of the story and I think part of that is the actress's performance, but I think also part of it is Simon Pegg's writing and the fact that he gave her some very amusing lines to say. And some of the lines that she says are kind of the lines that I think the audience is almost thinking. You know, some of the stuff that she says, you know, this is ridiculous or whatever. She's, you know, she's sort of she's sort of viewing the crew like we're viewing the crew from outside. So it's not like Kirk looking at a problem. It's Jayla at kind of like us as the audience looking at a problem. So, yeah, she's a great character. And we have another new fan today who came along to see uh, Star Trek Beyond live orchestra for the first time. And this is Leslie, all the way from Dublin. And she has a few things to say. Hi, I loved her strong role model. I loved her high kicks. I loved her sexuality. I loved her individuality. I loved her strength of character, which is bringing a new dimension. She stands alone, and yet she's a team player when she's pushed to it. So from the very first moment she comes on screen, she's hot. And the very last moment as she exits, she is seriously hot on the camera. 
So the high kicks, everything about her. Anyway, to the strength of her character, individuality, and the template of what she raises the bar to the modern woman. So the modern woman is not going to hop into bed with Scotty on the back of the bike very quickly. I think she just has that unique, it's my ship, my ship. But she's prepared to bend, she's flexible. Um, and then it's wonderful towards the end where you see that she's embraced as a team player. And that moment um, where her eyes you know, look down on the badge and you realize that this is the moment. So I go with you. She's one to watch. One thing that I noticed we have Beyond that came out in 2015. Yeah, so it's 2018 as we are recording this. I cannot believe it's been that long. And what I noticed was seeing the scene where they get off the Yorktown. We have Sulu pick up his daughter. They go arm in arm. And I'm like, do you remember the huge debacle that came because of that arm in arm walk off with Sulu? You know, and his mate. Like, it was so huge. And now watching it now, especially after Discovery, you know, after watching it with Hugh Culver and Stamets, like, it, it isn't even a point to con- talk about anymore. And I just, after that short amount of time, I was watching it and all of those memories came back and I'm like, everyone was so upset and I just think it was a beautiful scene. I thought it then, and I thought it now, and I'm just glad that we don't have to talk about it because it's it's just a scene now. Yeah, it's also nice the idea that some of them have families and like what Duncan was saying earlier about seeing the relationships amongst the crew. I think what you're feeling what you're getting is a more rounded picture of Starfleet officers perhaps maybe than you were getting in the other films, the earlier sort of Kelvin films. You're getting a sort of more of a complete idea that this is a community in space. These are actual people yes, that have lives, they have partners, they have children, or they're always, they have lots of different jobs on the Starship as well. So it's quite interesting. It's a, it's, it's a film, so you can't show all of this in a series like you could with Next Generation, which you can with Next Generation, or with Deep Space Nine, where the character, you, can, you, you get to know the character's likes and dislikes, their problems, their conflicts, because you've got a serialized television, so you've got more time to tell the story. So what they've done with Beyond is try and show that in short segments. You know, the show, there's, a, there's a flash of like an alien. The camera sweeps by an alien on Yorktown. So you get an idea there's different types of aliens in Yorktown. At one point during uh, the sort of end of the film where Yorktown's, there's a battle at Yorktown. There's actually like peril and danger. You see a whole bunch of Vulcans come out of a lift. And I noticed that this time. I was like, oh, it's Vulcans running coming out of a lift. And, I mean, they could have easily just have done that a lot cheaper with a whole bunch of extras just dressed as humans, or just as humans. You wouldn't dress as a human if you are a human. (laughs) So, but instead they're putting background people in costume and they're making background people be sort of like legitimate characters, if you see what I'm saying. And that's kind of what Sulu's husband and daughter is. When he he, he goes to see them, or he he comes out of the Enterprise when it's docked and he sees them there, um, she's carrying a little toy Enterprise. And that's also a really great touch. You know, you can see that her father works in the Enterprise, that so they bought her a toy Enterprise. There's little details like that that make add colour to the film and add colour to the background, add colour to the, to the, I guess you could say, the Star Trek universe without having to spell it out in a storyline or without dialogue. I was thinking during that scene when he walks off with his daughter and his partner, aren't we so lucky that we can revisit these characters from decades ago where 
at the time they were doing their best but we know now mm, yeah you did a lot but there was still a long way to go and we can revisit those and like put right what once went wrong to quote another show and obviously that does upset a lot of people but like for me it felt like a really wonderful opportunity and like I don't know really moving I found it really moving and I think there's still some way to go with some elements so the fact that they had Idris Elba as the baddie and the weird accent you can kind of think well and I think there was I think there was some debate around that at the time people were saying yeah you know it's a bit bit wide of the mark yeah so sort of like the um the frontier alien is the savage right the uncivilized savage yeah so I was going to talk about that like because there has been such the controversy about Takuvma and how he speaks Klingon in Discovery. And then we see, you know, Kral here. And I'm like, oh, he's speaking very broken and it's like difficult. Oh, sounds like Takuvma. So it's not the first time that we've seen this, you know, and I just, I found that an interesting parallel there. Yeah, I did. That did all cross my mind as well. And I wasn't sure where to put it. But yes, I guess when I said oh, we've come a long way and realised a lot of things weren't good enough. Obviously, we've still got a long way to go. And it's sometimes maybe... Well, I was going to say maybe sometimes it's hard to see when you're in the present day what you're doing that's not cool. But actually, there's often a lot of people who know it's not cool. And if we listen to them, we'll know. Yeah, that was that was a bit tricky for me at the end too. The, one of the issues for me is that Star Trek movie villains have never been very good, and when they, whenever they have a villain in a Star Trek movie who has a single-minded purpose, it's just it's always a, it's always a hole in the plot because most villains who have a single one single purpose and aren't that complex, and you're only seeing them for about two hours, are just not very authentic or realistic and it can be open you just question like what what exactly does crawl really want and you kind of kind of got a gist of what he kind of wants but he also i mean i guess he's like a madman really isn't he and most of the villains that you see in star trek movies are not that well drawn i would say that that's probably the weakest part of most star trek films except with the exception of khan but then that's because khan is already established in the original series and you know so I feel like Khan is more of an established character. We have a little bit more of an insight. And for him, he has actually got more of a legitimate, like, I wouldn't say legitimate. He's obviously a madman, but he's got more of a, a sort of a easily understandable, uh, not Amy shaking head, uh, <laughs> or maybe not understandable, but he, you know, he's got, he's got more of a purpose, I suppose. The one, the one film I like the most, well, one of the films I like the most of Star Trek films is The Voyage Home. And there is no villain in The Voyage Home. The villain is humanity because the villain is, humanity is the, uh, is the people who have led to the extinction, well, they've helped to create the extinction of the hump, uh, humpback whales, which is basically what's causing the probe to destroy the Earth. So, and I think that's kind of got one of the best messages of all the Star Trek movies, you know, about climate change and protecting species of animals and thinking about how how we treat our world and how we treat each other and that kind of thing and there is no villain in that there's no villain in that so i would argue well i would question any star trek movie or any big science fiction movie actually which has these crazy madmen type villains I, i think that's like the weakest part of the whole story so when you said the whales i went to the natural museum natural history museum 
And there, at the very top, huge skeleton of the well. And as you read through the plaque and just realize the numbers have decreased significantly. I mean, we're talking hundred thousands down to hundreds. Like, and the first thing I think of is the voyage home. And I'm like, oh my gosh, here's this well. And the, they're extinct and we have to save them, the voyage home. So funny you bring that up. should mention that the Natural History Museum is pretty much right next door to the Royal Albert Hall, which is where we saw the concert today. So Amy is getting a very good tour of the uh, sort of southwest of London. Thank you for joining us today on this little impromptu podcast show here, Primitive Culture, coming to you live from London in a variety of different locations. It's been an absolute pleasure to have Amy come over from the US. No, I am so excited. I When I decided to come over here, I'm like, can we all get together and can we record like a primitive culture? And here we are doing it. It's just a dream come true. Thank you so much, Clara and Duncan. Thank you. And thank you also to Tony for coming all the way from all the way from Guildford. Anyone, any, any English listeners will know that that isn't too far, but it's far. It's a train ride. I have to say it's been a pleasure to be a guest here on Primitive Culture. And I love these crossovers where the hosts of the various uh, podcast shows get together. We've all got our various viewpoints and, and what we see and take from Star Trek. It's all different. So it's lovely to jump in the melting pot and add our views, what we see and what we get from Star Trek. And a big thank you to our guests, my long-suffering better half, Ben, and my dear friend Susan, and Tony's partner, Leslie, who came all the way from Ireland. So it's been fantastic talking about Star Trek Beyond and watching it with a live orchestra, but it's not the only thing that's been happening on the network this week. Here's what you might have... (laughs) Elsewhere on Trek.fm. It's a collaborative Previously on Trek.fm, the 602 Club. I think that while while I agree he's not malicious and I hesitate... You know, it's hard to call him evil because he seems like such a... Zahn does a really great head game of constructing this time on an Imperial ship where you have to continually say to yourself... It's almost like, honestly, it's almost like watching John Smith at home in The Man in the High Castle. You see this guy in... A, in a, if anybody hasn't watched it, it's an alternative history thing based on a Philip K. Dick novel where in this alternate history, the the Axis powers won World War II. And so... Coming soon to a six of club near you. Oh, yeah. it's I love the show so much. But one of the mind tricks that show does with you is you meet this one character where you have to continually remind yourself he's working for the bad guys. Stop giving him so many breaks. Earl Grey. But I wanted to actually do some like humming and singing of my choice, if that's okay. all right with you guys. Please take it away. <laughs> so when I thought what I thought of it was I fell into a burning ring fire. of fire and went down, 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 and the flames went higher. I just love that song. I had to sing it. <laughs> to the journey! You compared the mind meld to notches on a bedpost. Why can't I compare it to trench coat flashing? No, I'm saying it's not like that. It shouldn't be like that. You're the one saying it's like that. I'm not at all. But if you're doing it, that's what you're doing. You're seeing how many people you can mind meld with, and that's notches on a bedpost or trench coat flashing. That's what you're trying to do. 
It just seems like such an efficient way to get knowledge and experiences from other people. You know what's more efficient? Assimilation. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. So what's stopping you from going that next step? Because we're, we're talking about the Kess area here. We don't have Seven of Nine yet, you know. Continuing mission. So you were that in the helps. second episode. I was in the second episode. Which, and at that time, it was no longer Star Trek Renegades. It was just Renegades. Well, when I got on the plane to go down to be on set, <laughs> it was Star Trek Renegades. When the plane landed, <laughs> CBS had released fan okay. film guidelines. Okay. And so they had already shot one day as Star Trek okay. Renegades with Nichelle Nichols and Walter Koenig, uh, Sirk Lofton and Tim Russ doing some green screen work. And they had the uniforms, the ears, the badges, all that. Mm-hmm. And then they had to shut production down for a day. They tried to get a hold of you know, lawyers talking to lawyers saying, what do we do to continue or not continue? And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation at the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. We are Primitive Culture and we are your hosts. My name is Clara Cook and you can find me on Twitter at MC. My co-host is Duncan Barrett and you can find Duncan on Twitter at Barrett's Books. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm. To get all the details, perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. Now I'd like to express a big thank you to our executive producer, Amy Nelson. You can find Amy Nelson on the Earl Grey podcast on Trek FM. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended all right.